0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This week's episode of Enough About Me is brought to you by Milton's The Store for Men. If you're planning a trip down the aisle like I am, Dana Katz and his team at Milton's will outfit all the guys in a great suit or tux choose from top designer styles in the latest colors and price ranges and with milton's buy one get one free suit sale it makes much more sense to buy than rent to make an appointment with one of their experts call or email wedding at miltons.com at milton's you'll be as comfortable in our stores as you'll be in our clothes south shore plaza braintree and chestnut hill square chestnut hill milton's the store for men
1: process for this is, this is not an ESPN production, right? This is your your company and you, you pitch ESPN on this idea. Is that how it works? Do they come to you?
2: you? Usually I pitch them. This one, they came to me.
1: Okay. And this is something that appealed to you at all? You grew up in New York, right? But still, I'm guessing, I mean, given, you know. Yeah, 18. well, the
2: thing is, uh, Jim Potter, the director, and right. I both started at NBA Entertainment in 1985. And our first big gig was serving as associate producers for... In 1987, he was embedded with the Celtics, and I was embedded with the Lakers for their year-end films. So, kind of coming full circle for us. So it was very, very interesting and and satisfying to, 30 years later, come back with the guy I started with, uh, to do this project on. Do you get a block What we started.
1: Do you get a? Do they tell you beforehand? Listen, we're going to go. Two nights on this because I mean some of them obviously are an hour some are five hours the OJ one was like nine thousand hours I mean obviously it's all different right
2: yeah this one um, coming off OJ they they were looking for something that they could expand into a, a series that something that was big enough to expand into a series and of course it's not the same kind of thing as OJ which is right right you know totally uh, different uh, but this is. More red meat for ESPN's audience, but also had ramifications of you know, social and cultural beyond the games themselves. So they felt it was worthy of a multi part uh, event. And, and they, they had decided um, to do four hours. And then a couple of months ago, we decided to up it to five. But from the very beginning, Connor Shell. Who runs uh, ran ESPN Films now runs a lot more than that. He he was saying, "You guys go as long as you need, take as much airtime as you want."
1: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned OJ, so you know, I'm in Boston. I grew up here. I grew up a, a huge Celtics fan. I grew up in the '80s, so I season tickets to the Garden with my dad. So this is for me, you know, right down the middle. So I I have to admit, given the the relationship with me and ESPN, the station with ESPN. Uh, I liked a lot of the documentary. Not a big fan of the first hour, or so I don't know if it's necessary. And maybe, and, and you can defend it, and we can may disagree. It might be different from somebody who lives in Seattle or somebody who lives in the Middle America or something. But I don't know if I need, you know, an hour on racial history in LA and Boston when I get in the Celtics Lakers uh, documentary. I feel like I've been there already.
2: Well, maybe you have, but uh, I think a lot of people, as particularly younger people who are a very, very big part of the audience. I mean, Mm -hmm. much, if not most of the audience that watches this show was not even born in 1987 or certainly not aware of what was was going on in 1987, let alone 1967. Mm -hmm. And because the rivalry, uh, when it began, was so, in with the racial aspect of it, the white versus black of it, on a gut level, if not a basketball level, uh, it was um, right because it was a tie. It, was really it wasn't. It wasn't, to it wasn't understand where that right. was coming from.
1: But it wasn't white, like you said. It's not white versus black on the actual court itself in the '60s. Obviously. No,
2: but the fans were were largely white versus black.
1: You think the and, fans and the fans in in uh, do you have any way of knowing that?
2: Yeah, I mean we have we have all the contemporary uh, newspaper accounts. We had a fan from Boston saying, "I don't want to come to a game and see all black players."
1: You have one. You said you had a fan who said that. Yeah. So one fan said that, and you you think that that that's the basis for no? There's that article
2: statement? after article. I think it's it's that the NBA was was sinking because uh, there were too many black players and you can't sell a, quote, black sport to a white public. And this was, you know, the demise of the NBA in the, in the 70s. And this is, you know, uh, and you, Bob Ryan himself says, you know, you can't, when when the Celtics started selling out in the '70s with Havlicek and Collins, after not selling out throughout the '60s, uh, he said, "You can't, you know, factor out race." Right. I saw. That. No, I Yeah, I, mean, I saw yeah, the quote in
1: the movie. But I would say this, and this is where I think you guys. So, think, are
2: you dismissing Bob, what Bob Ryan said? No, I know you are no, entitled. No, to I know. With I
1: know Bob very well. I think there's something to be said for that. But I would say this because I saw you guys talk about the hockey attendance versus the basketball attendance. You do realize the Celtics' attendance was higher than the league average every year in the 60s, right? And uh, every city that had both an NHL and NBA franchise, the NHL franchise, in every single city had higher attendance than the NBA. I mean, that's not mentioned at all in the documentary. You say, well, they had Bobby Orr and the Celtics had Bill Russell, so Boston's racist. But in fact, every city is consistent like that. And in fact, in the 70s, in the NBA... The average attendance goes up from the sixties everywhere, so it's not just the Boston racial thing. So you, I think you guys kind of blow through that. I think
0: how,
2: it, how many how many cities had NHL and NBA teams in the
1: sixties? Uh, Chicago,
2: yes, New Boston,
1: York. New Boston. York. Period. Uh, am I forgetting one more? No. Boston, Chicago, New York. Not Philly at that point, right? No. So yes, all three of those went up. Yes. So all three of them were the same. I mean, so does that mean that that Chicago in well, New the, York? Well,
2: the Bulls. I don't even think the Bulls. Had a team till sixty seven. Well, I, right, Detroit. The, the Knicks were the worst team in the league, mm-hmm. and the Celtics were the best team in the league. And right, and their
1: attendance was significantly higher in sixty seven. In their their attendance was fifty percent higher than the average NBA attendance that year. I have it right here. I have the attendance right in front of me.
2: Yeah. Okay. So. So you say race had nothing to no, 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 do no,
1: with... No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't, do that. don't do no, that. Don't do that. See what you're doing. Don't, don't do what? I'm don't, not doing anything. You just, said race had, you just said race had nothing. I didn't say that at all. Absolutely so what not. are you saying? Somebody so spread shit all over saying. Bill Russell's house, which is disgusting. Makes me yes, sick. one I, person
2: did that, so absolutely. that's
1: not city's fault. No, of course not. Well, do you think it's Boston's fault that guy. one person did that? No. Right. So that's what I'm saying. That guy's a creep, and I, I, I wish they'd found him and. You know, throw him in jail for the rest of his life. i been fine with that. But I do think, and I, I'm totally copy, Jonathan, the fact that I'm oversensitive because of so much that's been going on the last few months around here. I do get it gets it gets me up a little bit. But that does. Were, fr-
2: was, were, were people wrong to object loudly to what the fans said to Adam Jones?
1: Well, I don't think I don't think anybody said anything to Adam Jones.
2: Oh, okay. So so okay. So that was that was untrue. What was reported. well? There's no there's no
1: video proof. No one around. Adam Jones said it. No one else said it. No one around him. No one heard it. Nobody else but Adam Jones. I think Adam Jones was frustrated and said it and got upset. So I, I, was.
2: I, was, was there not a fan? I, 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 didn't follow it too closely, but was there not a fan who was banned for life from Fenway?
1: Uh, we think there was a fan who was banned for life from Fenway. Let me just. I'll, I'll ask you that before we get back to the documentary. And you know, I'm sure you came on here probably thought you're going to talk about you know AC Green and uh, you know Jerry Seasting, But we'll get to those guys in a second. But when so the fan was kicked out when a when a person in the stands claims he heard him. He he leaned over and said something to him about his son, who's biracial. Now the guy who said this is a freelancer for the Globe. has written stories about his biracial son for Yahoo. It just seems to me to be a large coincidence. Now again, do I do I think there's people who say N, the N word at Fenway Park? I sure do. I'm sure it happens. If they they should kick the guy out for life, but I think it happens equally in Cleveland, in Seattle, and that, that's where I get frustrated. I think this Boston gets tagged with this thing, and it does. As somebody who's lived here my whole life, it kind of pisses me off. And when you well,
2: I, I I don't mean to cut you off. I understand no, no, no. that. No, and ahead. I appreciate ahead. that. And you have the right to be. I think there are a couple of things that I'd like to say about the film. Yeah, go ahead. Back to the film. Bill Russell, when he had his number retired, Yep. Insisted that no fans
1: were right, no right. present. Right.
2: Now, I don't think that's because one guy...
1: Oh, no, I agree. I agree with okay,
2: you. so yeah, Okay, no, so well, let's, right. let's not say that if no, one guy no, you, initially, you initially
1: said one guy. To... You initially said one guy. I agree,
2: I agree with you. No, okay. well, I'm, I Do was I, beginning uh, to list all yeah, yeah, the yeah. evidence. Do I
1: think okay. Bill Russell in the 50s and 60s heard uh, a lot of stuff? Yes. Abs- I absolutely believe that 100%.
2: Okay. Now, in our film, we have Ted Landsmark, who's the man who's about to be stabbed with the American flag in yep. that famous
0: yep. Yep. horrible Picture, yeah, photograph. Yeah, yep.
2: And Ted Landsmark in our film which I'm sure you you would like to talk about, became a season ticket holder when the Celtics got Larry Bird. Mm-hmm. And friends of his said, you know, why do you write, root for them? They're a white team. And he said, no, they're not a white team. The Celtics are a model of successful integration. They have a black coach. They have great black players, Robert Parrish. Dennis Johnson, uh, they are, as in his words, iconographic and, of white people and black people working together. And,
1: and let me, sorry to interrupt you for one second, you do do a good job of mentioning, you know, like you said, how much Auerbach did, drafted the first black player, first black starting five, first black head coach. So, I mean, there's, you know, there, there, there's that. But I, I guess my question is, when, I, when you when you say, you know, and you had, you had a couple of guys talk about it that, you know, they didn't like, fans didn't like it when the black guys were here, but when the white guys came in, you know, people started flowing in. You have to be fair that that was going on in other cities as well. That's not acknowledged at all. It's this idea that Boston does it independently. I don't think, personally, I thought that was sort of unfair.
2: Well, I think if you want to celebrate the Celtics as as the film does for being a team that not just throughout the sixties but also throughout the eighties mm-hmm. represented what white people and black people can do together when they do their jobs and and treat each other with respect, as Bill Russell said when he took over the job in uh, from from red yep. uh, that it was just about respect uh, that's what the film says and if you if you want to realize what an accomplishment that was in Boston, of all places, then because Boston had a very violent and uh Not unique, but we loud. when you, when you loud we
1: say of all places, I mean, was was the racial scene in Boston any worse than LA? You rest, referenced the OJ documentary. I mean,
2: it, it wasn't. Yeah, right? and we show. We, no, no, I know Ice that. Cube no, in the documentary that. says we had it too. Right. No, I know and that.
1: But when you say of all places, that's suggesting it's sort of this the, the beacon
2: volume of and the reputation where Bob McAdoo says black players didn't want to play in Boston. Because of that photograph, right. because it, it reminded them of Alabama and Mississippi in the 60s to see that photograph. Black players didn't want to come to Boston now that in that city on that team that the black players didn't want to come to because of that photograph. And you can argue the justice of their opinion, but that's that's the feeling that was in the league and among the players and for that city to be for that team in that city of all cities to become a paragon of an integrated you know beautiful team to watch is a great accomplishment and it's a greater accomplishment than if it had happened in detroit or cleveland or or you know, Sacramento, where the history wasn't as front page national news flashpoint for a problem that certainly was happening all over America.
1: I always wonder about the process uh, when you make this documentary, when you reach out to people. When you go in and do this, you agree to do this. Do you, if you get a no from a Magic Johnson or a Larry Bird, do you just say, we're fucked, we can't do this, or do you soldier on?
2: Well, you don't. You don't say. You have to soldier on, right? Um,
1: was there a chance? Was there anyone? Because it seems that could be wrong. It seems like there's less bird in it than other stars. Was did bird give you less time?
0: Well,
2: you know, Larry doesn't love the interview process. <laughs> right, this is right. not what he's interested in really doing with his time anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: you know. Um, Larry would just as soon not talk about any of this anymore and just you know enjoy the the memories uh, privately. Um, you know James Worthy, Cedric Maxwell, ML Carr, Magic. Uh, you know Cooper, Kevin McHale, Danny Ainge. I mean these guys.
1: Yeah, it seemed like it, it seemed like it was, it was talking. Yeah, was it wasn't. Didn't seem like it was tough to get ML Carr on the record for this. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like he was...
2: ML, ML and Cedric. Uh, right. We're, we're uh, you know, we're eager to stay in the chair for as long as we had questions for him. But, you know, um, Gerald Henderson was another one who was who was great and, and uh, a really good interview. But um, in the sense of enjoying the experience of sharing his thoughts and memories and being present, and it's just something that Larry is not that into, and, and so his... His comments, his answers, his statements tend to be short, and they tend to be to the point. And, uh, you know, so his his screen time tends to be less. I mean, Bill Walton certainly, we could have done uh, two hours on, on the 86 team just letting Bill run. Right. Um, you know, and... Oh, and
1: well, it's funny. Walton's not really... Tied in the Celtics Lakers because in the, because you know the Celtics didn't play the Lakers in '86 and Walton was never the same after that you know
2: right in the finals I mean he certainly handed it to him during the oh right, yeah, the season, yeah yeah which, both which, times yeah um, but the uh, you know Walton in terms of the I- identity of that team in '86 mm-hmm. and, yeah. and the the way his teammates enjoyed him and and uh, the way he enjoyed. Being on that team and playing with those teammates uh, in that city was such a thrill of a lifetime for him that, uh, you know, and he loves talking about it. So I think different personalities give you different types of interviews. And, um, you know, uh, it's uh, it, 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 if, if you don't get one of the big ones um, – it certainly makes your life more difficult, uh, and it and it just makes the project less interesting. I mean, to hear from some guys and not other guys when they're all in the story is is uh, you know it's harder to do. I right? feel like you
1: got all the players you needed, though, right? Am I free? I, I feel no. Like- we we got everybody. Yeah, everybody. Right? Talked.
2: We we got everybody, and um, you know it's uh, you know like you said some guys you get for less time than others some guys are just not as expensive as others but yeah everybody you know this was really a a sweet spot for these guys because they are old enough to be away from it long enough to appreciate it in a you know for for the magical thing that it was and they're also young enough to be really energetic and and be able to sit in a chair for a long time and tell stories um, that, uh, uh, you know, when they get older, people tend to, you know, sometimes uh, details are harder to remember or, or, uh, you know, so that we really got them in the sweet spot 30 years out from from these glory days. And, uh, you know, that's part of why we expanded from four to five hours, just because the interviews on both sides, uh, were just, there was just so
1: much great stuff. What, you know, a guy who would seem to be a natural talking head in this would be Bill Simmons. Is Am I right in saying that's just a no-go? You would not be able to use him? Did you try and get him and he said no?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a, I think, a no-go probably from both sides. I mean, I don't think, uh, I, you know, I would, uh, Bill and I are good friends and I did a lot of work for him at Grantland and with some short films and on the earlier thirty for thirties that I did mm-hmm. with Bill, and I love him, and I would would not have occurred to me to ask him to be involved, and I don't think he would have wanted to. But right. uh, you know, I we we steer clear of that uh, in in our relationship at this point.
1: And no, Casey Jones, right?
2: Yeah, the Casey was not um, not in uh, condition to. To yeah. do a protracted interview from what we were told. But we certainly love Casey and tried to include as much as we could. You know, Casey was a guy, and I remember from covering them when I was at NBA Entertainment in the mid-'80s, um, you know, he was so content to allow the others to be in the spotlight, and that's a beautiful characteristic for a coach, particularly in the game of Basketball, where the players are so exposed and, and certainly deserve all the credit that they get when credit is due them. And, um, you know, he never tried to horn in on the spotlight. And uh, as a result, he's totally beloved by everybody who played for him, but there's not a whole lot of good footage of him.
1: The only the other criticism I would have of the documentary, and by and large, by the way, I liked it, but the other criticism I would personally have, and I, other people probably liked it, is for me, I don't need Donnie Wahlberg and Ice Cube back and forth. The footage, the guys talking, like it, there's enough drama that I don't need Ice Cube saying we're up two o or or Wahlberg saying, you know, we're doing this or we're doing that. It felt off for me when I'm watching the rest of it. Is that something you guys talked about? Did you like it all the way? Was that your start, your thought from the beginning when you get a celebrity from each side?
2: It yeah, help? it was, you know, I, I think again that's
1: know, maybe
2: partly coming from being in Boston and you don't need Donnie Wahlberg to tell you how to feel about certain things. Yeah. Um, but what we really wanted to do was to less chronicle what happened and more recreate the visceral choosing sides that was uh the sort of national experience of it. And by locating the narrators as partisan uh, in each side, I think that gives the viewer in Chicago and the viewer in Miami and the viewer in in Minneapolis or Cleveland uh, a sort of an emotional insight into the... The series in a way that they might not otherwise experience. Um, oh no! Go ahead. So that that was you know that that wasn't so much for fellow Bostonians and fellow Los Angelinos. That was uh,
1: you know that was for everybody else. Explain to me, and I started you know really getting into them about seven or eight years ago. Right about when it started. Explain to me the sort of boom of documentary films here in the last. I'm going to say. 10 years. I could be wrong. It just seems like it has exploded. I know Netflix is a big reason why. But these, I mean, this has taken on sort of a life of its own here in the last 10 years or so, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think 30 for 30 has been huge, certainly as it relates to sports and as it relates to me. But, uh, you know, I think um, there, there are a number of factors. I think the main one of the main driving factors is the cost. Um, you know, with digital cinematography and digital editing, the cost of doing a feature-length film is so much less than it used to be. And you used to need a huge operation, like NFL Films, where I used to work, or, mm-hmm. you know, another kind of film company, in order to shoot documentary films you needed a news uh division of a network or you know something like that and it was very rare that people would be able to raise the money to make full-length documentary Um, and now you have a combination of a number of factors the the low cost of making them is huge The, the ease of making them is huge uh you have the proliferation of outlets like Netflix and also just all the cable channels, right? Uh, and so you've got a, a hunger, a, a hunger for content coming not from the viewers but from the providers, you know, who have it, all this air to fill. And then you have the uh, sort of mainstreaming of nonfiction programming, where it's not just on PBS anymore, but you know, uh, so-called reality TV, which is a, at least in its roots, a, a form of nonfiction programming, or at least unscripted programming, I think is what they call it, because it is, you know, as much fiction as nonfiction. Right. But, uh, you know, I think people got used to the idea of, wow, you know, it doesn't need to be a scripted drama with actors like looking at real people is pretty interesting so i think there's a, a whole number of factors but i think you're absolutely right that it is um there's been an explosion of it and uh you know i don't think anybody was giving us five hours on tv to tell <laughs> would, the basketball history 10 years ago
1: but i would say did you direct survive in advance or no i did yeah it was terrific so Thanks. I would say, no, absolutely. So I would say, like, this is going to hurt, uh, my theory is this is going to hurt the sports movie itself going forward. Like, if you said to me, do I want to watch Surviving the Dance with all these guys sitting around that table and going back and forth, or do, do I want to see some Disney movie with whoever, Frank, Hank Azaria playing Jim Valvano, that would just seem fake to me at this point. I feel like that's, that's going to hurt it long term.
2: I think so. I think, I think uh, well, you know, it's interesting. You, you One would think so. On the other hand, there's still a huge, less serious sports fan audience that yeah. just loves stories. And if placing a story in the world of sports becomes sort of something that's more accepted, um, you know, it's interesting. When I made... A film called uh, The Best That Never Was for ESPN. Marcus Dupree, right. Marcus Dupree, right. Um, There was interest from producers in Hollywood to turn that into a dramatic feature film with actors, you know. And, um, you know, we were told at the time, and again, I, I kind of agree with you that, like, well, why would you want to do that? Here's the film. You know, it's perfectly fine. Why do you need to do that? Well, there's a big audience that loves stories that's not watching 30 for 30 on ESPN. True. There may be a big audience on ESPN, but there's a big audience of, you know, everybody else in America that's, that's not that's not tuning in but would love this story, uh, according to, you know, producers. But the... Uh, the people who fund these movies that cost a lot of money, well, you know, they say they they have to sell the foreign rights first right. in order to fund the movie. And African American doesn't sell well foreign. American football doesn't sell well foreign. Uh, so people weren't really... The people with the money weren't really into it. The filmmakers were into it. but so But maybe... You know, maybe people won't want to see movies like, uh, what was the uh, Texas Western movie called? Or,
1: um, oh, with uh, Glory
2: Road Josh or something Lucas? like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, fil- films like that, that Hollywood eyes, these great sports stories. Uh, you know, but then you have a film like Fever Pitch, which is awesome, and, and um, I don't know, I think... I think good stories are good stories, and and there's a, it's a big enough country, you know, 320 million or whatever, and and there's there's enough eyeballs to go around. So, but I, I'm with you. I, I would not run out to the theater to see the uh, Hollywoodized version of the Jim Valvano story if I've seen a documentary that was that was
1: done well. What's the great uh, documentary you want to make that you have been able to make and are able to get access? They want not talk to you. Is there one you're still chasing or no?
2: um you know, the Marcus Dupree one was that one for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was um you know, I'm the same age as Marcus and, and when he was a mythical figure in high school football, you know, I'd never seen him play. There was nobody had ever seen him play except for people who saw him in person in Mississippi and and he was this, you know, mythical figure and then what he did at Oklahoma as a freshman was, you know, blew our minds and then, uh, and then he disappears. So, uh, that, that was really the Holy grail for me in terms of, I really want to know what happened and I want to discover this and I want to discover it through the process of making a film about it. Um, so, uh, so that was the one and finding Marcus was, uh, you know, it was it was a film I had pitched numerous times and couldn't get couldn't get it funded. And then when ESPN approached me for the original Thirty for Thirty series, and said we want the filmmakers to come up with their own topic, something that they're passionate about, and doesn't have to be like the best right. quarterback ever or yeah. the best golfer ever. It's just whatever you want to tell. And I said, well, what about the best that never was? And and that's how the Marcus Dupree story got green lit
1: what's uh what are you what are you doing right now
2: I am doing a short film for the baseball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. They have a new theater that uh is being constructed now and hopefully be ready by inauguration weekend or induction weekend and um I uh, hope to have a, a a film about baseball ready for that. It's sort of derived out of the the film fastball that I had done that's uh I think on Netflix uh, Mm -hmm. now, but um, where it's uh, sort of a meditation on the sport, and um, it's a beautiful sport to me still, and and uh, really excited about having something that's going to show every day at the Baseball Hall of Fame.
1: Excellent, Celtics Lakers. I'm going to guess it seems like there's a Netflix is sort of this month or two period. Then it shows some show up and some don't. Is that going to show up on Netflix?
2: Yeah, I I hope so. I think um, most of them do. There's You know, because this involves the NBA, and anytime something involves the NBA, there are always, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, constraints on where it can air. And and uh, I'm not sure this will end up on Netflix. I don't know if uh, if Bad Boys is on Netflix or the the Orlando Magic one with Shaq and, and Penny ended Penny. up on
1: Netflix. Yeah, I don't think you know, I don't
0: think they are.
2: Yeah, I think I think they tend to. Not go to Netflix if they're NBA projects, but they may end up on NBA TV. Who knows? Hopefully they'll reshow it a lot on ESPN. I know it's going to be on ABC this Saturday afternoon and next Saturday afternoon. And, uh, you know, they do tend to re-air them a bunch.
1: All right, excellent. Well, it's the Celtics-Lakers. Like I said, thanks for coming on and slugging it out over the uh, the stuff at the beginning. Uh, uh,
2: happy to do it. And, and ratings are good. Everyone's happy with such care.
1: Everyone's happy with the ratings?
2: Yeah, I think the ratings were really good and um you know, I know ESPN on a Tuesday night with without a, you know, live sports uh, right. big big no, lead-in like yeah. the Heisman show or something. I think they're really thrilled with the uh with the ratings and look, people love this subject. They love the Celtics and Lakers and Magic and Larry and and there's something that is you know, it's uh, uh, you know pure is a funny word because, but but there was something that was you know Larry was just so extraordinary and so were his teammates and the same with Magic and his teammates and and people just love this stuff and it just feels real and uh, and people were looking forward to it and I hope I hope they enjoyed it.
1: Did you conduct a, uh, some of these interviews yourself or no?
2: Some most were Jim yeah. Jim Potteritz. Um,
1: Who'd you, you talk him, to? Did
2: the lion's share of of work uh, uh, regarding the interviews?
1: I feel like um, I feel like Pat Riley himself would be a good documentary subject.
2: He's amazing. Uh, you know, when I was embedded with the Lakers in '87, I was totally blown away by by him. He has this real magnetism, and you know it's the, the accidental way that he became the coach of the Lakers was
1: wild. This
2: really wild, right? Um, bike
1: accident, then magic fires, uh, Westhead. It's, it's just, it's nuts.
2: It's nuts. And, and, and he grew into it and, and he's a great personality and, and the great story from his, you know, it's the irony of him being the glamor boy coach of the glamor boy team when he's the real blue collar, uh, guy um, from upstate New York, I mean, and then, you know, the career he's had, and, and he's still so charismatic at age 71. I think he'd be a great one. I think you're right.
1: All right. Well, I appreciate it, John. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you, Kirk. All right. Thanks.
1: All right. Thanks again for listening to the Enough About Me podcast. Actually, you know what? I'm really not thankful at all. You should be thanking me. You get this shit every week. These great podcasts, totally free. Do me a favor. Would you go to iTunes, download it, go to Stitcher, do the same, and leave a rating, leave a review. That's where you can help me out. This podcast is going to be number one again, I guarantee it, and you're going to help me along with the process. So for that, I guess
0: at the end, maybe I will thank you. There's a lot of thank yous going back and forth. Here's the point. Fuck you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news,